Hi, I'm Dr. Jamil Sayaj. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about some deep stuff. I'm here to tell you that you're amazing. And often, the only person who can't see that is you. No matter who you are, what you do, or where you're from, there's greatness in you. Let's talk about it. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Jamil Sayaj, and welcome to the Transformation Starts Today podcast, where I interview leaders, champions, and high performers from all walks of life as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned along the way, and empowering perspectives to help you create an extraordinary life without regret, starting today. Today we have with us Christopher Knudsen. Christopher Knudsen is a published author, university instructor, inventor, and renowned consultant. He currently works as an independent fractional CMO and is a CEO at Stoic Yeti, an advertising agency focused on helping direct-to-consumer companies. He was formerly the CMO at Purple Mattress and has started and sold several companies, including 3D Plus Me, a venture-funded consumer 3D printing and scanning company. As a consultant, Christopher's main focus is to help businesses and ideas flourish alongside technological advancements. Christopher, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. And so we'd love to begin with, how are you? How's your day going? It's going good. It's, uh, you know, it's a Thursday and I love Thursday because that means Friday's tomorrow. So doing doing great over here. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. And so I'd love to dive in and, you know, I get to meet you alongside our, our listeners, which is going to be fantastic. And so can you please share with us your story, how you got to where you are today, what led you here, the lessons you learned along the way and why you do what you do? Yeah, that's great. Maybe I'll start with that last question first, if that's okay, because I can kind of back into to the story with that last question. It's um, why I do what I do is, um, and maybe I should even, if it's okay to, be, to to borrow your question, maybe rephrase it a little bit. It's, it, why did I write the book that I did, right? That that has a lot to do with my life and things that have happened to me, especially over the last 20 years. Uh, I've found a lot of people coming to me over the years for, I mean, as long as I can remember, who have said to me, hey, I have a skill set and I hate my job and I'm really good at the thing that I do, but I hate working in my company. I hate the culture. I don't like my boss, you know, all those types of things. And they look at me and they're like, how did you, how did you make that leap from a job over to uh, basically owning your own business and doing consulting and these types of things. And how do I do that? Right. And so I've had so many people who have approached me over the years, asked me that question that when the COVID-19 uh, crisis hit us there in February, March of 2020, I, I was like, like everybody else, I was laid out for like a month. Right. And we were all in lockdown and I write fiction. I've had two fiction books at the time out of a third one coming out this year. And I said to myself, I said, you know what, I'm going to take all of the notes I've ever written, everything I've ever said, everything I have, and I'm going to start, I'm going to write a book on this topic of how to go leave your day job and become your own boss. Because, And especially it's written for people who 
they don't want to go out and raise money. They're not trying to start a big company and they're not trying to invent software or, you know, build something along those lines that uh, especially like kind of raise venture capital mentality. They're not doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. I've done that before and that's a great route, but most people don't want to do that. What most people want to do is they're like, Hey, how do I just get out of the situation that I'm in and get myself into a situation where I own more of my time and I make more money. And so during COVID was the perfect time for me to sit down and write that book. So I, I sat down and I wrote it and there was something that was wrong with it that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And so I put it away for about a year and a half. And then I came back to it about middle of last year and what I easily identified what was wrong with the book. It was the last third of the book was, was wrong. I needed to rewrite it. And so I sat down, I rewrote the last third of the book and here we are pub publishing it um, this year. And so how I got there is um, I, I'm like a lot of people, right? I, I went to school and um, I even went to MBA school and I was going to go to law school. I talked about this in the book. And then I was working in a company where I got sued and I was like, I was named in a suit and uh, I, myself, the CEO and my boss, who was the, the chief financial officer at the time, we were all named in the suit. And I had to go through the process of a lawsuit. And I'd never, I didn't know anything about the law. So here I am studying for the LSAT and things like that. And I didn't know anything about what lawyers really did all day long. And then I go through the process of a lawsuit working in this company. And I was like, I'm not going to law school. I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> I'm like, is this really what lawyers do all day long? Because if this is what lawyers do all day long, this lawsuit was a blessing in disguise because it helps me to see like what my future looks like. And basically at no cost, because I wasn't paying for the, you know, the attorneys and things like that to defend us, the company was right. So we won that lawsuit, which was great. But the process of going through that lawsuit, I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to law school. So um, I'll go to my wife and I'm like, Hey, I've changed my mind. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to go to MBA school. And so I went to MBA school and it was great. And um, I was like a lot of other people where you go to school, you're trying to figure out what you want to do. You're trying to like make a lot of money. You want to make as much money as possible. Maybe you have a family and you have kids uh, and you're trying to support them. And, uh, you know, when you have kids, your clock starts to tick. Then that is, you know, first of all, they want dolls and they want Legos and then they want, you know, cars and then they want college, you know, and they want all these things. And so when you start to have children, you have this clock that's ticking and you're kind of in this race with your income where you, you've got to kind of be able to support this family, not kind of, you have to support this family. And I felt that pressure, right? I felt that pressure to do it. So I thought I got to go to MBA school. I've got to get the best jobs that I can get into. And I got to a place in about 2009, 2010, I landed in a really large agency and I was their chief marketing officer. And, uh, and it was a job that I hated with a passion. I mean, we had hundreds of employees and, uh, this was around 2009, 2010, when a lot of the millennials were starting to come into the workforce out of college and had no idea what was going on. And we're all really upset because the economy was down, you know, they wanted more money than they were making. They thought they were going to get more money than they were making. And, and, you know, people were generally like really unhappy at that time. And I was unhappy too, because I was trying to figure out, I've landed in this CMO job and I'm, and it's kind of this prestigious agency, but do I really love what I'm doing? And the answer was no. And what I, I began to see really quickly in the market was at the time, I'd say in the 2000s, there was this emerging uh, field of outsource or fractional chief financial officers was starting to become a very, very popular thing for small businesses. 
And I was like, look, uh, businesses need professional marketing help too. It's not just the, the finance side, right? They need marketing help. Too. You get a lot of smaller companies that can't afford a talented uh, marketing staff or a CMO, of course, and those types of things. I said, I can go out and be a fractional CMO and uh, and sell myself as that service. And that's what I decided to do. So I was like, look, if I can't make this work in in six months, then I'll go get a new job, right? But I'm like, I, I was hell bent on making it work because I, I looked at my life at the time I was 35 years old. I'm 49 years old now. At the time I was 35 years old and I was like, I, I've got another solid 20 to 30 years of work in front of me. Like, do I really want to be showing up in an office all day and dealing with like cultural problems and managing people who don't want to be here and all of the problems that you experience in work, right? Working in an office and working in a, a large company or even a small company, I, I was really having like this, I, I think a midlife crisis very early, right? Which was like, do I really, really want to do this, right? So um, so I started off on this path of like uh, not knowing where it would lead me, but I'm like, I'm going to go out. I'm just going to go for it. And I had to figure it out for myself. There was really, there was no manual, right? For like going out and like, how are you going to go do this? At least none that I found. There was nothing that was like, this is the blueprint. This is how you go and do this thing. So that's why I wrote the book because I wanted to give people a blueprint that I didn't have. So I had to go fill my way around in the dark and hope that I didn't die in the process, right? And walk off a cliff or something. And, uh, and, and I was, I was, I was successful. I was able to figure it out. And that's because I had a lot of really good people around me. I had a good partner at the time who was in it with me that was trying to figure it out with me. And, uh, and we were able to figure it out. And so that set me on this path where, uh, I was able to set myself up later, you know, 10 years down the road at the time in 2020 to be able to start writing this book on how to show other people how to do it. That was a mic drop moment right there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I just talked a lot there, so I apologize. But that's that's the um, that's how I got there, at least to that beginning part. And there's a lot of zany things that have happened in the meantime that I talk a lot about in the book. Um, but uh, you know, that was the jumping off point of like, hey, how do we go get this done? Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing. And what's the name of the book for our listeners? The book is Trust Me, I'm a Consultant. Perfect, perfect, perfect. That's I'll what it's called. I'll Trust have to look me. That. Yeah, I'll yeah. Have to look Tr- in the show notes. Trust me, I'm a consultant, and the subtitle is How I Got Paid in a Job Interview, Wrote the Playbook for Seven-Figure Consulting, and Learned the Stunning Truth About Happiness. And uh, it's a lot of the types of things I talk about there. Some of the chapters, so the people I, I like, I, I'm a marketing guy, right? So I like to, and I like to write, and I like to write things that are compelling. So the book doesn't have a lot of boringness to it, almost like a memoir where I'm trying to use kind of these crazy stories that happened to me to teach important lessons on how you get to independent consulting and you're successful at it. So um, I talk about uh, some of the chapter headings of things like how to lose your sister's millions on a podcasting startup, right? Um, The worst advice a venture capitalist ever gave a room full of women. That's a really terrible story. Um, Navy SEAL laws of combat and a bored coup d'etat. You know, how I helped two broke inventors fall backwards in hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Larry, the ch- convicted child molester, starts a children's education company. You know, these are all true stories. These are, these are, and I wrote these chapter headings I hope are compelling. So people look and go, oh, I got to, I've, I've got to read that story. I need to know what he's talking about. How do you get paid in a job interview? Right. Um, it's things like that. So I wanted to give people these compelling, uh, these compelling chapters and chapter headings. So they would look at it and go, I got to pick that book up. I got to read it. Right. Because it's not just like, the and this is where I think you and I kind of intersect. It's not just the part where it's like, 
hey, here's how to divorce yourself from from work and get yourself into like a great work environment for yourself, consulting and making your own hours. But it really is how to create a better life for yourself, right? It's how to create a better life for yourself. It's how to create your own happiness. And it's how to take some of those first steps that you, uh, frequently most people won't go take those steps, right? There's that initial step that you have to take and you have all this fear and this uncertainty and this doubt that's holding you back. And guess what? It holds back most people. And if you can figure out how to get through that barrier, I call it FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. If you can figure out how to get through the FUD, then you're going to find a level of happiness that a lot of people are not allowing themselves to find because they're afraid of what they're going to find when they step over that I call it the Indiana Jones invisible bridge where you remember in the 30 Indiana Jones movie and he's got to step out on, he's got to take a leap of faith and he's got to step out on the bridge. Right. And when he does it, he realizes that the bridge was there all along. He throws the dirt out on the bridge and he's like, Oh, it's right there. Right. That's, that's all of us. We all have to take that, that leap of faith at some point in life. And I equate a lot of when you're able to, figure out how to work for yourself, get your own business, um, be a productive consultant, you know, add a lot of value for your clients and do those types of things and basically set your own schedule that you're going to find a lot of happiness in life that you might not have found while working in a company where you have what I call this work persona, which is that persona that you put on with your costume. Maybe it's a suit and tie, maybe it's a uniform, whatever it is. And that person that you have to go be to survive in that environment versus the person that you are outside of that environment, which for a lot of people is a different individual. They put on a different persona to go into work to survive. And then when they leave, they put on their persona that's not their work persona, which might be their family, you know, their family persona, their church persona, their community persona, whatever that may be, which is actually who their true self is. Their true self is usually not who they are at work, right? It's a lot of people that you're working with in the work environment, who they are, how they act in the work environment. It's not who they are outside of that work environment. And that's pretty devastating for a lot of people psychologically. Um, it has a long-term lasting negative psychological effect. When you can break into uh, self-employment, there's no need to create a persona to survive. You can be yourself and you can go out in the world and you can be much happier doing it than you were going on and putting on the fake persona and going into the office every day. So. Yeah. There's a few things that you shared that I wrote down that I thought were really important to bring some additional awareness to first, you know, you had that experience where you were experiencing the lawsuit and then you yeah. yourself, hold on. Is this is what, is it, is this what it's like to be an attorney? Now, no, yeah. offense, no offense to any attorneys who are listening. And I'm sure there's much more to it, but in that experience, when you were saying, this sucks. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this every day. And so if we come from a space of saying that either our most precious or one of our most precious resources is our time, yeah. and let's know how much we have left. If you're going to think about being a doctor or a lawyer, something that requires a, a fair amount of schooling and time investment that you have to put in, do you know what you're getting into? Yeah. The research ahead of time to find out what's it actually like. So the importance of shadowing or mentorship or doing something, you get a taste of it, a feel for it to see, is this something that actually resonates with my authentic self, with who I really am and how I want to show up in the world? And if it's not, in a way, you're setting yourself up for failure. And at the very least, you're taking a pretty big gamble that you're going to like it. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you knew ahead of time that you could kind of preemptively taste it, 
first. Why wouldn't you do that? And the second thing is this idea of you said, I, I hated my job with a passion. And I thought <laughs> that was really funny because so many people, if you ask them, you know, what are you most passionate about? They may or may not have some positive, let's say, answers, but they might have an answer like that of, well, let me tell you what I hate. And then they go into this energy and this intention with there. But if you think about if I were to go out on my own, if I were to start my own business, what do I actually have to lose? And if I come from a space of worst case scenario, like you said, I just go get another job. The job is always available. Just like yeah. somebody, let's say, is young, they're young and they haven't gone to college yet or whatever their age, but they haven't gone to college yet. And then they're wondering, should I go to college or should I maybe start that business, start that sales job, do that thing over here? And you could, college is always going to be there. So you yeah. can try the business first. And if it doesn't work the way you thought it would, go back to college, it'll be there. Go back to the job, it'll be there. But if you don't try it, then you always have in the back of your mind that what if, and if I had tried it, could it have worked? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I have a son who's 19 and uh, and he's starting his freshman year of college right now, which sounds weird because he's 19. When he was in high school, he took courses on how to be an electrician. Mm. And when he graduated from high school, he had two of the four years required of schooling to be an electrician under his belt. And so he he took a job with an electrical company and went to work as an electrician. And he at 18 and he was getting I don't know, you probably understand, you know this for sure, which is like the world is really short on electricians. So an 18 year old electrician, even an 18 who's got no experience is making quite a bit of money. And, uh, and which he was like, at the beginning, he was really, it was like, oh, I'm making a lot of money. I'm living on my own. I've got this cool skill I'm developing. And then he called me one day and he was, he's like, he, he was having like something of a panic attack. And he says, dad, I'm driving down the freeway and I'm in really bad traffic. And I'm looking at all the people around me and I don't want to be these people. And I was like, okay, like, uh, okay. I'm, I'm like, what do you want to do? Right. And he's like, I think I'm going to go try my hand at college. And I was like, okay, you you have to, he had to go through that process for himself, right? Of learning that thing and being proud about the thing that he learned, which is great. And then kind of coming to this realization that like, hey, I'm really young. I, I don't have to actually be doing this right now. Maybe I should go throw my hat in in college and go to college. And so he starts college next week and I'm really proud of him. I'm really proud of him that he was able to discover that on his own, right? And he might come back to the electrician thing later, but he was like, I really got to go kind of figure this out and see if there's something that I wasn't doing for myself in college, right? So um, that point that you just made about mentorship and really discovering what you want to do is super important. Um, I, I call this like, I, I don't know what it is. I, I, always, I have, you get to a certain place in life and lawyers become a fixture of your life. Um, there's a lot of people who are going to be laughing right now on the podcast because they understand what I'm talking about. And it's like, you just get to a place in life where you you're on the phone with lawyers talking to them, right? Whether it's contract issues or taxes or whatever it is, you you get into that one percent and you're you're into lawyers. And I've worked with a lot of different lawyers, and I call it the lawyer trick. And I call my lawyers out on this, where they'll be like, "Man, you have such a cool business." It's like you know, I wish I had thought about it and made that decision to go do something like that because I really don't like being a lawyer. And I'm like, you know what? Every lawyer I know says that to me every lawyer I know. And I'm like, are you guys trying to keep people out of the lawyer profession to like keep, you know, the competition out? Or are you like legitimately like wishing you would have gone and done something else in life? And I actually think a lot of those guys legitimately wish they would have gone and done something else in life. Right. And so the point that you brought up there 
uh, Jamil, is really important, which is like, if you're younger, especially if you're listening to this and you're younger, you're in college right now or somewhere along those lines, Jamil's exactly right. Go and shadow somebody in that profession that you want to go into to make sure that that's something you want to do. My father-in-law taught me this really important principle. He said, the 18-year-old, your 18-year-old self will decide what your 50-year-old self does for a living. Right. That's kind of terrifying if you think about it. Like you're 18, the 18 year old decides and the 50 year old obeys. Right. And that's how it is for most of us. And so there's that important principle of going out and finding mentors. And I think, like you said, shadow some people. There's also a really important distinction to make here, too, because I talk to a lot of people who are technicians and they have really good skill sets. Technicians are your accountants, your computer programmers, your graphic designers, your product managers, right? Your uh, engineers, right? Any type of an engineer is a technician. And um, those technical skills acquired are gold, right? It's it's And so if you're a graphic designer and you work in a company uh, that you hate, it doesn't need, mean that you hate being a graphic designer. In fact, you might love being a graphic designer, but you, just, you might just hate your culture and you might just need to divorce yourself from the culture. And I, I've had a lot of that conversation where I see People getting confused because they're like, well, I don't know if I like being a graphic designer or computer program or whatever. And those are legitimate questions that people have to, you know, fish through. But as I talk it through with them, I usually find that they're intermingling incorrectly, intermingling the 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 company that they work for with their technical skill set. So, um, so the 18 year old self was usually right. It's like, hey, you're going to be a great graphic designer. You're going to be a great computer programmer. It's just getting yourself into that work environment and that culture or figuring out how to cross the Indiana Jones Invisible Bridge and going into this world of self-employment. That's this amazing world. Like, this is a really incredible, amazing world that a lot of people are simply just afraid to go figure out. Right. That's 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 really what I see. Yeah. And I have a question about that. And prior to yeah. that, I wanted to just comment on something you said, you know, for our listeners, I want you to think about it like this. If right now, no matter what you do, if right now you're not happy in any area of your life, the decision that you have to make is what am I going to do about it? And I can't promise you that if you take that step, you'll be happy, but I can promise you that if you don't take that step, nothing's going to change. And so if you come from that space of like, like Chris said, you know, maybe I changed job, maybe I changed career or, or maybe I, I changed the environment, but I keep the same job or the same career because it's maybe just the people I'm around or it's the culture of the company, whatever it might be. But if you don't take the step, again, you could always go back to the old way. But if the current way is not working for you, you don't do anything different, your life's not going to change. And so- there's all, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, I was about to ask you a different question. So please, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to comment that, but please go with your question. Sure. And so given what you were just describing, for people who are listening who are employed and they want to shift into this self-employed or entrepreneur mindset- what do you feel is that big shift in mindset and mentality they have to have? Ah, that's a great question. That's a that's an awesome question. So a really big indicator of your success on your own is how you currently act as an employee. Okay. So we um, uh, we're frequently critical of uh, the teacher. Uh, we're critical of the manager. We're critical of uh, the the rabbi or the pastor or whoever it is, right? Um, but we're not critical of the student. 
we're not critical of uh, the people who are on the other end of, of that, right? And frequently that's the employee, right? So we have this 80-20 problem that I talk about in the book pretty extensively where 20% of your employees, and this has been pretty well documented, there's been books written about this, but 20% of your employees are doing the majority of the work in the business, 80% are not doing, they're not contributing, right? And so I go through this whole process where with the reader where I'm like, I need you to discover what side of the 80-20 you're on. Are you a 20%er or are you an 80%er? Because if you're a 20%er, you're set yourself up really well for, um, for success as an independent consultant. What is a 20%er? Someone who's excellent at communication, someone who is mentally and physically present, um, someone who is solutions oriented, right? Someone who is not passive aggressive, um, someone who's respectful even to people that they don't like, um, someone who is really hard to uh, offend and they don't hold a grudge someone who is a, a bridge builder. They're usually the peacemakers in the company, right? And they don't get involved in things like inter-office rivalries. And they're very good at whatever aspect of their job is it is that they do, right? And so these are a lot of your 20% type people. They, your 20%ers typically don't need a boss. They're just self-starters. They'll just go to work and they'll just go do it, right? And if you're a 20% self-starter and you're a star in your business, you're probably going to translate really, really well over into... The world of consulting because you're just going to take a skill set that you naturally have. You're already a high EQ, a high have a high emotional quotient, and that high emotional quotient is going to serve you very well when you're out on your own and doing your own work. Now, that begs the question: What about the eighty percenters? Now, if you're an eighty percenter, that doesn't mean that um, you can't go and be successful. But I try and encourage people to use their time in their employment situation to really turn the page and take themselves from being an 80 percenter and really figure out what it means to become a 20 percenter and then make that contribution inside of a business and set yourself up really well by developing those skill sets to get you into a spot so that when you do go out and you do consult, you're uh, you're going to be successful at it because there's a direct correlation between that 20 percent, again, that 20 percent successful people in every business and um, high high producing, high value consultants that are out working independently in the market. It reminds me of that quote, I'm going to paraphrase it in case I get it wrong, but it's something like, until you're willing to do more than you're paid for, you will never get paid more for what you do. That's it. Yeah. And so with that in mind, I'm going to jump into your framework and assume this is accurate. Um, so if I'm in the 80%, I'm probably coming from that space of I'm trying to do the minimal amount to not get fired and kind of get by. And I'm just, I'm, I show up, I clock in, I clock out. And the thing is that there's not any additional level of ownership or responsibility that I may be taking on. And so I'm doing what is expected. So from a perspective of, I brought, I brought this up in a previous podcast, the idea of if I'm in business, I'm not aiming for customer satisfaction because what that means is people got what they expected. I'm aiming for customer astonishment. I'm aiming for delighting you. Nice. I want you to be wowed. Yes. Because Walt Disney's got a quote, he goes, make it so good, people come back and they bring their friends. Yeah. It's like, that's what you're looking for, but that doesn't happen with satisfaction. It's got to be above that. So the 20%, this go-getter, this starter mentality, it's almost like it's, it's not my company, but I'm going to act like it is. And I'm going to show up so powerfully that either I'm getting promoted, <laughs> I'm getting a raise, or I go out, I get a better job somewhere else, and or I start my own thing. But if I'm not going to be willing to take that ownership, if I'm not going to step up and take the additional responsibility, that's not likely going to lead to you creating your own thing in a beautiful way. And it's also not likely to lead to any promotions or raises anytime soon. 
100% yes, right? We, we have this phase that it's really fun. I actually think it's super funny um, that I, I think it's Gen Z that thinks that they've invented, they've invented this term that they think is this new thing that's not this new thing. And it's called quiet quitting, right? And quiet quitting is not a new phenomenon. And they're like, oh, I just go to work and I just kind of do the minimum and I just get by. And, you know, it's because my I hate my boss or I hate my company or whatever. And I'm like, uh, that's been around for 100 years. Like you might have just created this phrase called quiet quitting, but that's just everybody is a lot of people have done that over, you know, the last hundred years of the industrial revolution. I mean, you know, give me a break. You guys aren't inventing something new. And, and, and also you kind of need to look at that and um, work is an exchange of value, right? Like if I show up at the office and they've hired me to do something, I need to do that work in exchange for the paycheck. And I need to do that because I'm an ethical obligation to do it. Right. So if you're like, well, I'm just going to show up and just maybe kind of do it or whatever, you're not really fulfilling on even an ethical level on what you should be doing. And that's where I tell people like, if you're quiet quitting, that's really dumb. You just need to just like, you just need to quit. Don't quiet quit, loudly quit or politely quit. Right. Just like, but go do something where you're going to add value somewhere else. Um, and you're especially not going to be a 20 percenter in that situation. You're not going to put yourself in a spot where you're setting yourself up for success to go work for yourself. I mean, I've run into a lot of people who um, I was surprised because they made this leap into self-employment. I'll run into them a year later and I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I got a job, right? I got, yeah, oh, okay. Well, you know what happened? Like, um, and that's fine. They went and got a job. It didn't work out or whatever. But a lot of times it was those people are people who need a boss, right? They're just like, most people need a boss. And this is what you, if you're listening to the podcast right now, you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, like, are you the boss of your own life? Do you get up in the morning, self-start, go to work, do what you're supposed to do every day and do it well, just uh, especially at the level that you're talking about, Joel, right? It's like, are you doing it at that level? Or like, do you need someone looking over your shoulder telling you what to do? And, And unfortunately, a lot of people... Uh, fall into that that bucket of, I need a boss, I need someone to tell me what to do. And uh, that just doesn't work in the world of self-employment because you're just you're not setting yourself up to go out, to self-start, to, to have the initiative to get out there and to really you know claim your place in the world uh, because you, you really need someone telling you what to do. And guess what? There's no one telling, telling you what to do. I mean, we all have a boss at some level, right? Uh, your spouse could be your boss. Your, your customers could be your boss. Your, your boss is obviously your boss, right? So I, I think about everybody in the world. I'm like, everybody has a boss. The president of the United States has a boss, right? The, 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 the taxpayers, the citizens of this country are the boss of the president of the United States. And the, those people can fire the president of the United States, right? So we all have a boss. Uh, uh, the CEO of Disney has a boss. He gets fired by the board. The board's the boss, right? So um, and shareholders, right? So everybody has a boss, but it's like, what is that boss relationship to you? I mean, are you making your boss's life easier? Are you being the boss of yourself? Uh, you know, uh, and and if you are, if you're if you're doing those types of things, you're gonna do really well on your own. But if you're not, it doesn't mean that you can't. If you're not, especially if you're younger, like I had to learn this. Like initially, I was a little bit lost in my 20s trying to figure out a lot of these types of things, right? So if you're in your 20s. And you're listening to this right now and you're like, well, I feel like I could be my own boss, but I just don't know what to do. It's like, okay, uh, that's totally fine, right? You're going to have to just get into the groove of work enough and long enough to to understand what it means to actually be a contributor in the office um, to then set yourself up into a position where you can go out and really be successful in the world on your own, right? So so it's not a, um, you're not condemning yourself if you're like, well, I kind of feel like I'm that person and maybe I'm lazy or I'm whatever, but it's like, you're not condemning yourself to this 
life where you're just going to go in and quiet quit all day long in the office. It's like you are in control of yourself. You know, you can, you can decide what you want to do with your own life. And so I encourage people to do that. Like look in the mirror, have a really honest conversation with yourself. This is called internalization. Internalization is where we can honestly look in the mirror and we can say, Hey, you're the problem. I talk about in the book, I'm like the, the one common denominator in of all of my problems is me. It's me. I'm the common denominator, right? And so I frequently have to look in the mirror and go, okay, what did you do wrong? What are you doing wrong? Um, and, or I have to go to people who I know are really honest and I have to ask them, hey, what do you, you think I'm doing here? Am I doing something wrong? Should I do something different? And I'm, I'm lucky to have a couple of people around me who are honest enough to be able to say, yeah, you, should, you really need to be doing this or you really need, really need to be doing that. Um, I'd encourage you to find those types of friends or, or parents or siblings or mentors or whoever who can politely help you through that process of self-discovery to get you into a place where you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm the common denominator in all my problems. And so here's what I got to do to go fix my life. Yeah, man. So well said. And I've got a bunch of things I wrote down here as you were speaking that I think will add to our audience's experience yeah. you just shared. The first thing is this idea of in certain respects, you know, it's not our fault in the sense that the school system, my understanding is as it was created throughout the industrial revolution, we've been in a way conditioned from like a factory worker perspective. Oh yeah. You know, you show up, you sit in your desk, you're quiet, you raise your hand, you only speak when spoken to, you have to ask permission to do different things. You report to a certain place at a certain time. You don't talk to the people around you. That's cheating. You, know? <laughs> you don't do anything like that. So we've been, we've been conditioned in a sense to not be an entrepreneur, to not be our own boss. And the thing is, if you do decide that you want to change that mentality, I think last time I checked, only about 10%, I think, of the country are business owners and about 90% are employees. And if you come no. from a space of wanting to make that shift, I love when you said everybody has a boss. And what I wrote down here is my boss is my mission. Yeah. So from absolutely. that space, yeah. If everyone who's listening can get in touch with what is a mission, a purpose, a calling that you could create that's bigger than you, that is so exciting for you. It pulls you out of bed in the morning because you go, I really want to make progress towards that. This is my 25, 50, 60 year goal whatever that looks like, if that's your boss, well, what's your boss asking you to do today to forward the mission? And if you're willing to do it, life will get really great for you. But if you're not willing to do that, if you're only willing to do the bare minimum, you're you're much better off having a job somewhere because you're probably going to create a lot of pain for yourself if you try to create yeah. your own business. Second thing I wrote down here is this is a just a place of, that I come from with all of my clients when I'm when I'm working. And for our listeners, my belief you are a powerful creator. You're the creator of your reality, the creator of your own destiny. And if you live in commitment, if you live in integrity, you show up as a certain version of you that can pretty much create and do anything that you want to do. But like that quiet quitting example you talked about, that to me is out of integrity behavior. That's, you, yeah. saying, you know, my definition of integrity is when what I think, say, and do are all in alignment. And so if what I'm thinking is, wow, this job sucks. I can't stand this. I'm not even going to really do the job. I'll do the bare minimum. And that's my doing. Like you said, I'm out of integrity with, with my contract, with my agreement, with my boss, with whatever I said I was going to do. I don't even want to be there. And yet no one's forcing me to be there. There's no gun to my head. I took the job. And so if I'm going to quiet quit, like you said, loud quit and go do something else. See, your life is so precious and your time is so short. And I understand also there's nuances and there's someone who's yeah. going, you don't understand. Like, this is my situation. 
but please hear me out when I say you are far more powerful than you give yourself credit for. And almost always the thing holding you back is the story that you're making up about why you can't have what you say you want. And so if you stop telling yourself the story and you step into what is a life that I would actually be excited about, you can begin looking and finding for that today. But if you keep telling yourself the story about why I'm not the problem, it's society, it's the company, it's my boss, but why are you sticking around? Oh, I don't have a choice. You always have a choice. Exactly. So when you come from that space, you're disempowering yourself. And again, there's a to, to wrap it up, there's a quote, I forgot who said it, but argue for your limitations and you get to keep them. So I often tell my clients, don't argue for your limitations, argue for your possibilities, argue for why you can do it, not why you can't. And if yeah. you argue for why you're stuck, you're going to stay stuck. But if you're going to argue for why it you is. can actually take charge of your life and do something about it, your life can change in an extraordinary way faster than you can possibly imagine. I 1000% agree with everything you just said. It's um, there's this, this question this quote, Oprah Winfrey, she, I'm going to add to your definition of integrity and apply it to the 80% here, which is Oprah said, the definition of integrity is what are you doing when no one is looking, right? And so if you're one of those 80 percenters and you want to be a 20 percenter, which I would encourage all of you 80 percenters to do anyway, even if you're not going to go become a consultant, work on your own, you need to stay in employment or whatever, that's fine, but become a 20 percenter. And so while you're sitting there in the office, Pretend your boss is looking over your shoulder and then ask yourself, what am I doing right now? Right. Okay. What am I doing right now to create value for this place that's paying me to be here? This needs to be a, uh, an ethical and it needs to be a fair exchange of value. You're getting a paycheck. You're also probably getting benefits and a bunch of other perks. Right. Uh, and so what are you doing to satisfy your contract with your employer to make sure that you're adding value there and then become a 20 percenter in the process of doing that? Right. So I think it's, it's really important. And something that you just said, it reminded me of two words. So uh, pre as a preface to what I'm about to say, you know, by no means, I don't think you're saying this either, but by no means am I saying to our listeners, you have to go on, go out on your own, be an entrepreneur, be a business owner. No, mm -hmm. no, I want you to do the thing that you want to do that fulfills you the most. And I remember hearing yes. a, a business owner named Gary Vaynerchuk, he's very famous on social media. And he had this um, video where he said something like, so many people want to be the number one at a company, in this case, like the owner, but they may be far more successful to be number eight and he, or number 12. And he said, yeah. and back when the video was out, you know, Facebook was Facebook, it wasn't Meta. And he said, the number 22 at Meta is going to make far more money than most people do in their career trying to be an entrepreneur. And so come from that space of, I can be an entrepreneur or I can be an intrapreneur. And mm -hmm. that's what you were just saying, where an entrepreneur, it's your thing. You went out on your own, you're building it, you're creating it. And again, if you're the self-starter, if you're going to be committed to it, you can pull that off. But you may not be fulfilled with it if it's not really in alignment with your nature. But if you do want to have that boss, if you do want to be more of the technician, like I have the skill set, but I'm not the owner. I don't really want to deal with that. I want to just work on my thing and excel at it and do the best that I can and get paid to do it then you'd be an entrepreneur where you're in the business treating it as if it's yours, even though it's not. And you're going to bring that level of ownership and accountability and commitment and excellence to it. At that point, again, you're going to raise the ranks faster. You'll get paid more for what you do. And if that's the kind of life that you want, you'll thrive in that. But I think we're both probably saying, but don't be in that 80% that's just trying to get by. Yeah. You're so much greater than that. And if you're just going to allow yourself to just skate, skate by like that, it's not a life that I think most people would choose if they knew what they were getting into. Yeah. It's self-inflicted. Like being an 80 percenter is self-inflicted. 
right? You don't have to be, I love what you just said. It's exactly right. If, if you got, if you're like, if you're really sold on, I got to have a quote unquote steady paycheck. If you're really so, we can go into why that isn't actually true. And we're not, but we're not going to, right? It's just, but if you're like, I got to work in this company and I got to have that. There's some people who like, they're like, Hey, I, I've got um, family members who have health issues and I really need to have and make sure I have a steady health insurance policy. Right. And so I've got to be in this job. Oh, perfect. Okay. Totally get it. Right. Where going out might be a lot more of a risk for you because of the health insurance issue or whatever it may be. You can get health insurance working on your own and that's easy, but you may look at it and say, that's just too much of a risk right now. I've got these obligations um, to family members to take care of them. And it's just too much of a risk. Okay, great. Go be a 20% of that. Right. And, and so I spent a lot of time in that book talking about this, like exactly what you said, which is you don't have to go do it, but if you do make sure you do it this way. If you don't do it though, make sure you're not that 80, go be that 20 percenter, right? Go be the 20 percenter. And it's going to be it, for all the reasons that you just said, uh, Jamil, it's, that's why you want to go be that 20 percenter, right? Because you're going to find that if you make that decision to be in the 80 percent, that you're going to cause yourself a really long life of unhappiness, a really long life of unhappiness. And we talk about happiness. Um, and I talk about this a lot in the book where it's, um, I have a really big problem with the statement, um, happiness is a choice, okay? Because some, it's half true. If you go in and you rob a 7-Eleven and you get caught and you go to jail because you robbed the 7-Eleven, you made a bad decision that directly resulted in unhappiness. You're gonna be sitting in jail and it's gonna change the trajectory in the course of your life for doing that. And it's gonna cause a lot of unhappiness. There are things that happen to you in life that are important to happen to you that you have to experience that are not happy things. Uh, losing a job and going through that process. Death of a loved one. That's traumatic, right? Those things are going to cause unhappiness. Typically, it's a shorter term ha un unhappiness, right? You're going to go through a process. I have a good friend who lost his wife and uh, I was sitting with him after the funeral and I said, it's going to be a really hard year, but you're going to get to the end of the year and you're going to be okay. I said, and we're going to keep talking about this because you're going to get in. And he told me we got to the end of that year and he said, you were right. It took a year. I'm dating now. I feel bad. I'm going to be okay. Right. But he was extremely unhappy for that year and for very good reason. Right. But that experience built him as an individual. It built all kinds of positive things came out of that experience for him. That was a negative experience that led to a lot of unhappiness, but it was a building, a life building experience, right? My, my, uh, my advice is to do those, uh, or I should say not do those things that are choices that are going to lead to a lot of unhappiness, knowing that there are these macro events that are going to occur in your life that are going to make you unhappy those are opportunities to build. Those are opportunities to learn. And when you come out the other side of those, uh, losing a job, most people will lose a job in their life. They're either going to get fired. They're going to get laid off. That is an opportunity for you to come out the other end of that experience, a better person in a better situation than you were in before. And uh, fortunately, so many people do, right? They'll look at it and go, okay, well, I'm going to just try and go get another job at a better company for more money. And, and, and again, a lot of people do that, right? So that's a, that's a good example that I think a lot of people go through. Death being another one that's a lot more hard, right? Or a lot more difficult or sickness, you know, experiencing cancer or something like that, right? So 
stay away from those things that you can directly control in your life that cause unhappiness, right? Like being an 80 percenter, you're just making yourself unhappy. Don't make yourself unhappy by being an 80 percenter, by being miserable and showing up at the office all day long, you know, make correct choices and make yourself happy, right? Make yourself happy. And so when those life events come along that are unavoidable, that you can't control death, sickness, unemployment, some of those types of things, you're in such a place from a foundation standpoint that you can come through those events, a much better person out the other end, right? Because it's a lot harder to go into those types of life events when you're already depressed because you've made a decision that you're not going to try at work or that you hate your company and you're not going to do this or you're not going to do that. If you're already in that spot mentally and you're already in a bad framework, when you start running into those other unavoidable things in life, you're just going to be more unhappy, right? So, so that, that, that dichotomy is really hard, but I spent a lot of time in my book talking about that, those things that you can and can't control. And in terms of happiness, my advice is make sure you control those things that you can control and just make the choice to be happy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, for the people who they want to make the choice, they want to either be the entrepreneur on their own mm-hmm. or they want to be the 20% of the entrepreneur, let's say, like, like we were talking about, what do you what have you heard? the primary reasons they give for why they don't step out on their own or, or step into a, you know, a bigger version of them. Uh, Fear and and fear is lack of knowledge, right? So um, they don't have a knowledge of how to get over the Indiana Jones bridge, right? So they're standing at the bridge and they're like, I can't do it. I can't step out there because I don't, I don't have the, the, um, I don't have a process in place to understand how to productively cross that bridge and not kill myself in the process, right? And so fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD will hold most people back from making that uh, leap of faith and stepping onto the bridge and crossing over the bridge, right? So I spent a lot of time in the book talking about in in detail, like the the problem with a lot of books, especially business books is you're getting a brush. You're getting like a 30,000 foot brush, right? Where it's like, here's what kind of the world looks like. And you're like, you come away from the book and you're like, I don't know. I'm not, I, I think I understand what they're saying, but you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm trying to get down into a process with the reader. There is a specific process to follow here to lead to your success so that you don't fall off the invisible bridge and kill yourself. Right now, if you fall off the invisible bridge, it's like I, I talk about burning ships, and this is what the you know, pilgrims and those guys would do. They they get to a place and they would burn their ships. They're like, we're gonna make it last here, right? And uh, I'm like, I encourage you to burn your ship, get over that bridge and burn your ship. However, if you get over that bridge and you can't make it work, guess what? The lifeboat's right there. You can just go get another job, right? So there's important things that you need to do. You need to have your family support, especially your spouse's support. You've, I, I encourage people to have at least six months of savings in the bank. You got to have at least six months of savings so that you have money to live on and just pretend that for six months, you're going to have no income. Now, if you're doing it correctly, you're walking into it with one or two clients to start and you're actually having income and you can stretch that savings out with that income out to like a year, right? But I go through this exact process of how do you get those first clients? How do you keep those clients? How do you make sure you have enough runway so that you can get out to that place where you're getting enough full-time income in the door that hopefully you get to the end of a year and you're making way more money at the end of that year than you were at the beginning of that year when you left your job. Yeah. You know, at the start of our call, you mentioned kind of briefly, and I want to get back to that. You said 
essentially there's a persona that you might take on a mask, which is what persona means like actor's mask. There's a mask that you might wear when you're at work, which is different yeah. than the real you. Yes. Talk about why that could actually be very problematic and what the solution is to that. Yeah. Be a genuine self. Right. And, and I would even say if you, if you have this, a lot of times you're building this persona or you're putting a mask on because it's armor, it's protection in the workplace, right? Because you're, you're probably protecting yourself from, a bad boss, bad coworkers, bad culture, whatever it may be. I mean, people don't, um, they don't quit uh, jobs. They don't quit companies. They typically quit bosses. That, that's why they leave, right? They're, 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 they're quitting their managers, what they're doing. And uh, I mean, I've, I've had that experience multiple times in my life where I'm like, I really like the company, but I can't, I can't work for this guy. Right. And um, I'm trying to remember the statistic I quoted in the book. It's something oh, I should have looked it up. I apologize because it's something like by the time you're 35, you're going to have nine jobs, nine to 14 jobs, I believe it is. Right. And that's, wow. that's stunning. I mean, we would have been back in the call it the nineties and the two thousands. And we would look at a, a resume where someone is at a job for a year or two, and then they're at another job and then the year or two and they're another job. But that's standard today. I would say almost every resume I look at today especially if the person is under the age of 40, that's exactly what their resume looks like. And it tells me that we have a management crisis in this country. We have um, a lot of people who are managing human beings that don't know how to manage human beings. And it, they compound the problem by putting on this armor and this mask and they go into the office and they act like somebody that they aren't. And they treat people the way that they wouldn't want to be treated. Right. Uh, and uh, they cause a lot of uh, disruption in the workplace because they're a bad manager and people quit. People quit because of it. Um, MBA schools recognized this problem um, in the, the 1980s. And uh, there was this major problem in corporate America with man bad management. And they tried to create management um, practice, uh, best practices to teach in MBA schools and business schools. And they mostly failed. Because um, management is is not a, a spreadsheet. I can teach a spreadsheet. I can we can teach finance. That's easy, right? But uh, human relations is uh, is not a spreadsheet. I, I think you mentioned at the beginning, and I, I talk about it a lot. But I teach as an adjunct at a couple of different universities, and I've told my my business students, I'm like, hey, look, you, you I'm I'm gonna just tell you this right now. I don't want you to get too upset about it, but you might have made a mistake being a business major. Because you're going to go into business and you're going to find out that most of business is about psychology. It's about really understanding the human mind and how to work with other people, how to build productive relationships and how to work through conflict and all these types of things. And we simply don't teach that in business school. We talk about a lot in psychology classes and sociology and how groups work and these types of things. But in business, we're generally thinking about um, spreadsheets and uh, numbers and marketing strategies and these types of things. And we're very much not prepared to walk into this office environment where we're stuck in this confined space with people for eight hours a day. And, uh, and, and so we're generally failing at it as a society. Now, America has woken up to this um, because a lot of people just generally accepted that this was the issue. When COVID hit and we all went home for work, everybody was like, and everybody was like, uh, this is way better because they're not in this confined environment with these people that they don't like. They only have to see them across the way in Zoom every so often. And they're at home in an environment where they can be their natural persona, their, their natural self. And they only have to put their armor on sometimes when they're maybe on a Zoom call. And what happened? We lived through it, right? What happened? All the Everybody was like, I'm not going back to the office. 
I'm not going back to the, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, I want to stay and I want to work from home. My company, everybody works from home, which is totally fine. We find that that's a better environment because most of the people who work for me are technicians and they work better at home, right? Um, Malcolm Gladwell, the author, uh, he has a company and he was complaining bitterly uh, in, uh, there was a really good story about this in the New York Post. He was complaining bitterly because he could not get his employees back into the office and he was blaming the employees. And I was like, that is really wrong. I'm sorry. Like, that's not the way you approach this. You have to look at your business as a business owner, as a manager, you have to look at your business and you have to ask yourself, you have to look in the mirror and internalize it and ask yourself, why do people not want to come back here? There's a reason people don't want to come back here. We've created all kinds of really cool incentives. Silicon Valley kind of invented all this stuff. We've got on-site dry cleaning. We've got uh, free meals and we've got valet services and we've got uh, they'll come to your uh, the office and they'll change the oil in your car. And uh, all these really cool, we've got, um, this is the best scam of all. We've got uh, unlimited vacation, right? Unlimited vacation. There's no vacation policy. We have unlimited vacation days. That's totally policed by the culture. In those cultures where they have this no vacation policy type thing, people are actually working more because they're afraid to go because they're like, everybody's policing each other. Well, how long has that guy been on vacation? Right? And so they're kind of all policing each other and no one's going on vacation in those environments or they're going on vacation too much and everybody's getting after that person. They're on vacation too much. They're on vacation too much. They're not getting their job done. It turns into a disaster. I call this the Venus flytrap effect, right? Where it looks super appealing, but once you get inside of it, you're dead, right? And we have to create these perks to recruit people and to bring them in. And um, Malcolm Gladwell should stop looking at his employees and saying, what's wrong with you? He needs to look at his Venus flytrap and say, what's wrong with my Venus flytrap, right? Like, what am I doing here that's making people not want to come back to the office? And it's not just him. It's every boss in America that's up against this problem right now of how do I get people back in the office? Um, they have to fundamentally ask themselves that question. I think a hybrid office environment is a great solution to that, where sometimes we're in the office, sometimes we're not, because there is a lot of value in being in the office sometimes. My company, we're all in the office on Monday. We all meet together on Monday afternoons. We're talking about clients. We're talking about all kinds of, you know, issues in the company. We, we bring lunch in. We put, you know, we have a big screen up. We're looking at everything together. We got a whiteboard. We're coming up with ideas. We're doing all this stuff together. The rest of the week, we're all working at home. And it's very productive. It works extremely, extremely well. And I think corporate America would be really wise to take that model. I know most companies are doing that, or I should say a lot of companies are doing that right now where it's possible to do that. But if you can't get your employees back to the office... You got to go through the internalization exercise here and ask yourself that like, stop looking at the employee and saying, oh, you just want to work at home in your underwear. That's not it. That's not what it is, right? You got to look at yourself in the mirror and you got to look at your company and the culture you created or the company that the culture that's been created in your company and ask yourself, why do people not want to come back here? That when you answer that question, then you're going to be able to get people back in the office because you got to fix some stuff. So yeah. And just building on that, when you were talking earlier about EQ, and then you were talking yeah. right now about these uh, business students that you have, and you would say, there's a lot of psychology that maybe we're not going to teach you, but you need to know from your perspective, for all of the business owners, the managers, the leaders who are listening right now, what are the the qualities, the skills that maybe they haven't developed yet that are in your experience have been so crucial to success in business that you could share with them? Communication is number one, and it's it's verbal communication. Typically, we're making the mistake in management. We're managing by text. We're managing by email. We're managing by Slack. 
That's a terrible way to manage, especially if there's a conflict going on, because you can't understand tone in text messaging, right? You've got to get in front of people and you actually have to have conversations with them, right? So that's that's number one. And, and that might be, if you're in a hybrid office environment, that might be like we're doing right now, we're on Zoom and we're talking, but you got to do even at least the electronic version of what we're doing right now, which is having a face-to-face conversation. And you got to talk to somebody because it's just really ineffective to do other ways. I worked with a boss who was, he was, uh, this was in like 2001. I mean, he was a manager by email. Like he didn't want to talk to you. He just want to send an email. Sometimes he would just send a one subject line of a question in, you know, and send it to you. He, and he worked in the office next to me. He wouldn't get up, come over and say, Hey man, what do you think about this or whatever? You know, he was literally, he, all he did was send email all day long, super ineffective. Right. So you have to be present mentally and physically. And in this world that we're in of of hybrid office environments, you still like we're physically present right now. We might be doing it over Zoom, but we're physically present. Mental presence is exactly this thing that we've been talking about, about quiet quitting. If you're quiet quitting, you're not mentally present. And you can be a manager and be a quiet quitter, right? Um, you, yeah, I've talked, I've consulted, and I've been inside plenty of companies where I've had the employees openly complain to me, well, I don't, I don't ever see my boss. I hardly ever see the guy. Like half the time he's not even here. And I'm like, okay, that's super ineffective, right? They, there's no lines of communication that are there, right? Managers have to be solutions driven, right? And um, it's it's your job to come up with solutions. So people come to you with a problem. I used to make, I made this mistake a lot um, when I was a younger manager. I would say, someone coming to me with a problem, I'm like, well, hey, go back and think about it and go back and think about a couple of solutions and then come back and talk to me. Right. And what I really should have been doing was, hey, let's brainstorm some solutions together. But I was, I was kind of trying to train them to come with solutions. I got a problem, but I think I might have this solution to it. It's not a bad way to do it, but I found that it was way more effective when I was like, okay, what are some things you think that we could do then to fix it? I've got a couple of ideas. I want to hear your ideas. Let's, let's talk about it together. Right. Um, not, not being an a-hole. Like, I don't know what this is about this world that we live in today where people think that it's like totally acceptable to go to work and be a manager and be an a-hole. It's not acceptable. Like, it's just not acceptable. It's the number one reason people being jerks is the number one reason why people don't want to work with you. Right. Like, it, and it's not necessary. Like you, you can get done a lot more done through nice than you can by being mean. And if you want to have that reputation, that's great. It's not great. But if you want to have that reputation, just understand what it's going to yield. Right. Um, I seem to see this thing when uh, it was really interesting when Steve Jobs biography came out. If you've ever read Steve Jobs biography from uh, Walter Isaacson, he talks about Steve Jobs management style in there. And a lot of people, I think, read that book and they were like, this is how Steve Jobs did it. So I'm going to go do it. And they were belligerent and they were kind of mean at times. They could be, you know, and Steve Jobs was like that and, and unapologetically so. Right. And uh, I read this book from this guy that worked with Steve Jobs, where he spent the entire book trying to justify Steve Jobs' behavior in the office. And I, I put the book down when I read it. And I was like, this is the corporate version of battered wife syndrome. Like, that's exactly what this is. Like, this guy, like, he was so beat up and he thought, I got to go justify the way Steve Jobs acted. And, and he wrote a book about it. And I'm like, wow, this is pathetic. And so, don't be a jerk to your people. Like it's, there's no reason to be mean. There's no reason to be an a-hole, right? It just doesn't exist. So in that, you got to just be respectful too. Don't hold grudges. Let people make mistakes. People are human beings. They're going to make mistakes. Now, sometimes they're going to make really big mistakes and you're going to be faced with some decisions, right? 
But generally, people want to understand. Um, my mentor taught me this, uh, Chuck Coonrat, who wrote the book, The Game of Work, which he wrote in the 1980s, which is still applicable to management today. I encourage everyone to go pick it up. It's a great book. Of management, he says this, when you define the playing field, your life is like this too. So let's pretend it's a soccer field, right? When you define the rules of that field and everybody knows what the rules are on the field and who the players are, who's the ref, who's the coaches, all those types of things, and everybody understands what's going on, then guess what? Things just, they just work. Things just work. Now, occasionally someone's going to, there's going to be a foul. The whistle's going to blow. The coach is going to yell something, you know, those types of things. But everybody understands the playing field. Everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing on that play field. As a manager, you have to define the playing field. As a CEO for your company, you have to define the playing field. And if you define that playing field and then you say to your um, players, hey, you know the rules, now play within the rules and go do your job, guess what? Your life and their life is gonna be a hundred times easier. The same principle applies in life. You need to create a playing field for your life where you know who the players are, you know what the rules are, you know what the goals are, and the outcome is going to be. And it's the same exact thing in life. So if you follow just kind of these really simple, basic things that for some reason, and I say this as someone who's taught in MBA programs for years, 10 plus years, I've taught in MBA programs. It shouldn't be this hard to get or explain. But for some reason, academic programs have a very difficult time uh, conveying to people proper management skills. And a lot of times the students of those programs who are going to later become managers they don't get it because they're just going by their personality. They're putting on their armor, their fake persona, their mask, whatever it is. They're adopting their boss's bad habits and behaviors. They, be, they create those and they make them for themselves. And they're just not learning those skills and understanding it when proper management is in the field of business, proper management and being a good manager is honestly one of the easiest things, the principles, the correct principles behind it one of the easiest things to understand it's just are you good enough to go be able to implement it it's going to come down to are you a 20 percenter how's your eq how's your iq right those things all come into play what's the culture of your business i've seen a lot of cultures where they just just in, they like rewarded bad management and as a consultant it's awesome for me i've got to walk into businesses and looked at ceos that i've worked with and i'm like hey you're creating a bad culture here by allowing X, Y, and Z to happen with your managers. And I can say that without fear of being fired. Now he might kill my consulting contract, but so what? I got to land out the door, right? It's like, I'm just going to tell you, and I tell all my clients when I meet with them up front, I'm like, the one thing you can expect from me is I'm going to be very honest with you. And if I disagree with you, I'm going to do it respectfully, but trust me, you're going to know. I'm going to let you know, right? And I'm going to give you data points and I'm going to tell you how you should fix it, right? And and I've had a lot of those experiences where I've met with CEOs and I'm like, I just don't understand why you're allowing this to happen. You're creating turnover problems. You're creating problems in your sales organization. You're you know, you're not driving the revenue you should be driving. All these types of things. And there's a hundred stories I could tell about this. I tell a lot of them in the book um, where these types of problems with management and culture cause just massive amounts of problems. So all this drama, you just don't need this drama in business. You just need to show up and do your jobs and be nice. Like, really? I mean, just like, it's so dumb, you know? So anyway, sorry, I went off there. I apologize. No, no, it, was, it was good. Um, I would, to, to add to that, whether it's an intimate relationship, a business relationship, if you're hiring people, the simple question to be with, or it's more like a statement, here's how to win 
with me or here's how to win here and here's yep. how to not win here. And so when you have clear boundaries and they're enforceable, if it's in a relationship, it's like, hey, here's my boundary. And if they're aware of it and they want to be with you, they don't cross that. If you're, yes. if you're hiring somebody and you say, hey, here's the standard we hold ourselves to in this company. And if you're willing to play at that standard, we like the rest of your stuff, the job's yours. But if you're not, then it's not going to work. Then you, everyone knows what's going on. There's no hidden surprises. But if you walk into a situation and you're not clear on what the standard is, you're not clear on what the boundaries are, you're either going to test it or you're going to overrun it without even knowing it. Yeah. And that's where most businesses and most CEOs and managers are making mistakes is they don't define clearly the boundaries. They don't define the playing field for their players. And the place to do it is right up front when they get hired, just exactly like you just said. You're like, hey, this is how you win. This is how you lose. Just so you understand, this is the playing field. Any questions? Nope, I got it. Okay, cool. And then everybody understands what that playing field looks like. It's a formula for success. And it's so simple. It's so simple to implement. And most people don't do it. Most companies don't do it. It just doesn't exist. And so it kind of goes back to what we said earlier for our listeners. Don't be most companies. Be that 20% or less, the, the 5 the 10 the 1%. And you'll uh, you'll extreme you'll experience an extreme amount of success. And so, Chris, totally. the foundation of this podcast and my work is to help people create an extraordinary life without regret. If somebody came to you and they said, "Chris, how do I have a life like that?" What would you tell them? Yeah, I'd say don't get to eighty and be, and wonder what if, right? Which sounds kind of cliche because we talk about that a lot, right? But I don't want that. I I, I my mantra is I don't want to let fear, uncertainty, and doubt control my life, right? So. I've intentionally put myself in a lot of really uncomfortable situations in life. Um, a lot of really uncomfortable situations where I had to take a risk or I had to do something that was way outside of my personality or outside of my comfort zone. And it's in that place way outside of the box of where you normally exist that you find success. And so um, it's hard. Risk is a big part of your personality. Your risk adverseness is a big part of your personality. In life, you have to take risks. You have to take risks. And so you have to evaluate your risk adversiveness and your risk factors, right? And then you've got to build a plan to go out and make some success for yourself. But don't put yourself in a situation where you're, you're 80 years old on your deathbed and you're looking back going, man, I really wish, you know, when I was 23, I would have tried this. Or when I was 35, I would have taken up that guy on that thing. Or, um, you know, I would have, there, there's, you're, you're going to get about, I'm going to hit, I'm going to say it's about every seven years in life, you get a once in a lifetime opportunity. So it's not actually once in a lifetime. It's once every seven years, seven year opportunity. That's what I think it is. I see it about every seven years, there's an opportunity that comes along that can change your life. And um, typically when faced with that opportunity, uh, you a lot of people just don't do it. I, I had, uh, I, I'm going to be careful about how I say this because I, I know he'll listen to this probably at some point, but um, I had um, I had an employee who his lifelong dream was to work for a major gaming company. Okay, he wanted to work. He wanted to work in marketing at a major gaming company. I took him with me to a trade show, and this gaming company I'll leave them I'll leave their name out, but they were exhibiting at this trade show, massive booth. I walked in there and I asked who the marketing manager was, and I asked him for a call because I was trying to sell him something at the time. He agreed. Um, we got on a call two weeks later after the trade show, I had this employee on the phone with me and we went through, I was pitching him on this thing and we talked about it. And I got to the end. I said, Oh, Hey, by the way, this guy that's on the phone with me, that works for me. He's actually an intern. 
And his like passion is your business. And he's, his other passion is marketing. And he would love to figure out how to work at, to start out as an internship and in an internship with your business and get in there and figure out how to show you that he can drive a lot of value. And, and like, this is his goal in life. So I'm okay losing him to you. And the guy was like, Oh, that's awesome. He's like, Hey, here's my email. Send me an, send me an email and just reference this phone call. And let's talk about getting you into our internship program. He was like, okay, this is this guy's lifelong dream. Guess what? He never emailed the guy. He never emailed the guy. And I was like, why? And he's like, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Like he couldn't answer the question. Don't let that happen to you. Cause those, those opportunities, if you miss an opportunity, the next one will show up in seven years. It's kind of like as an average, that next one will show up in seven years. Don't let them, don't let those opportunities pass you by. Yeah. That's a powerful story. And with all respect to that person, just my kind of comment on it. If somebody were, if it was me and someone's in that situation and they tell me, I'm like, why didn't you email them? And they say, I don't know. At that point, it, it really is either they, they didn't equate in their mind how big of a deal this could have been for them, given what they just told you that they wanted. They didn't line up that this could get me there. Or if they did, then they don't want it as bad as they say they do. That's a very good point. You know, because if, if you really want something, you go after it. And there's that old, yeah. it becomes cliche, but there's that old expression. If you want it, you find a way. If you don't, you find an excuse. Yeah. And, you know, that the, the could be secondary gain. You know, it's like scary going into the thing that I really want. What if I fail? And so then I stay in the safe spot. But you were talking about risk earlier in, in your statement. And my question to people is to consider what's the bigger risk? going after what you really want more than anything, and it maybe doesn't work out, or not trying to begin with and staying in something that's kind of eating away at your soul. Mm. And when you go, what's the bigger risk? Not trying every single time. And yeah. when you come from that space, I, I remember hearing, oh, there's a book, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember what the book was. It was a business book. It was really fantastic. And the guy said something in the book to the extent of people think entrepreneurs are risk takers. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's the furthest thing from the truth. And the, yeah. guy, the guy was like a billionaire who's saying this. And he goes, I know a lot of high end entrepreneurs. And he goes, they're the most risk adverse people you'd ever meet. Because like Warren Buffett talks about how the more you know about something, the less risky it is for you. So these are yes. people that are positioning themselves in such a way that the deck is stacked in their favor that they're going to win given their skill set, how they're showing up, how they position themselves, et cetera. But if you're going to take a gamble, take it on you every time. Yeah. 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 Those entrepreneurs are just calculated risk takers. Yeah. That's a totally different than being a gambler. Yes. Right. They're calculating the risk and to leave employment and go to self-employment is a, is a, there's a formula for it. So if you have fear because you don't know how to do it, then learn the formula and calculate your risk and then make the leap, right? That's the thing that you got to go do. I, I'm very explicit in my book and trust me, I'm a consultant. I'm like, do not just go and just jump into this and just like without a plan. Don't do that. That's a very, very bad idea. And what you're saying and what the truth is, it's, it's totally true. What you're saying is that the successful people in this world, the 1%, they have a plan. They're methodical in the execution of that plan, but they're not throwing the dice down and hoping, you know, or the, the, the craps table open, they're going to hit red 11. I mean, in Vegas, that's not how it works. Uh, it's a methodical, calculated, risk-taking 
process, right? But but there's always a risk. But don't get to 80 and be like, oh, crap, I should have taken that risk. I didn't take that risk. And now I regret it. Don't let that happen to you. Yeah. And just to add to that, I wrote down earlier, you'd mentioned that statistic, like the average, I think it was 35 or 40 year old has nine to 14 jobs around yeah. that, that point. And they would usually blame, you know, the employer or the boss. Mm-hmm. And I wrote here like internal, external, and this idea that in general, I find that for most people, they're really driven by meaning. They want to create an impact. They want to create a difference, whether it's for themselves or for their family or, you know, the com- the community, the company, the world, depending on their size of their vision, they want to make a positive impact. They want to make a difference. They want their work to matter. And so there's an internal and an external side of that. Like you said, there is the company's, let's say, responsibility of how mm-hmm. am I designing the culture here where people want to be here, where they want to contribute, they want to stay but you can't just rely on the people on the outside to make you feel something on the inside. How are you choosing to show up in the world as let's say the, the high performing employee and, or, you know, the entrepreneur, entrepreneur, how are you showing up in the world where you can create the meaning that you're looking to experience on the inside? You can fashion it on the inside. It's almost like saying, like uh, when we said earlier in the beginning, you were like, I passionately hated my job. So then for me, it would be okay. If you passionately hate your job, there's really just two choices if you want to be happy. One is leave, and two is find a way to love it. Mm-hmm. Those are the only kind of options if you're going to stay and you want to be happy. Yeah. Uh, and so if you want to be happy, rather. And so from that space, if I'm going to find a way to love it, I have to shift how I relate to it. I have to stop telling yeah. myself all the stories about why it sucks. <laughs> I got to get some powerful stories that make me feel better. And so from that space, we can create a ton of internal shifts, shift our relationship to risk if we step into that way of being. And so with that being said, if, if this was your last opportunity to share your message with the world, if everyone listening would never hear from you again, what would you want to make sure that you leave them with? Yeah, I would say um, I want to I want to come back and comment on something you said. Is that really before I answer that? Is that OK? Yeah, I have sure. this chapter in the book that I call working next to the Arc de Triumph sucks. OK, and it, it is a story about I was in Paris I got ripped off by this taxi cab driver and I had to go exchange some money at an, a currency exchange window. And I go in to this office or actually it was on the street. And I walk up to the window and it was literally across the street from the Arc de Triomphe. And the girl who's working in the currency exchange booth, she said, I gave her some hundred dollar bill, a couple hundred dollars or something like that to exchange. And she says, Oh, you're Amer- you're an American. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Utah. That's I'm from outside Salt Lake city, Utah. And she said, oh, is that near Yellowstone? And I said, yeah, I can drive to Yellowstone in a few hours. Uh, is that near Las Vegas? Yeah, I can get to Las Vegas in a one-hour plane ride, right? What about the Grand Canyon, right? She, had, she says, I have read books and I own all these picture books about the Western United States, and it's my dream to go there. And um, I'll never go there. And I, I'll never make enough money to make it there. And I'll never go. And I have this terrible job. I hate this job. And I said... You work across the street from the Arc de Triomphe. You see one of the great architectural wonders of the world from your window where you work every single day, right? And so this is, I think, a point that you're making too, Jamel, is is you might have to internalize it a little bit and look around your situation and go, hey, if I just change my attitude here a little bit, I'm actually in a really good place. I'm actually in a really good place. And maybe I need to have a little more, more gratitude 
and understand that this is this is my situation and I need to make it a better situation for myself by changing my attitude, having a lot more gratitude for where I'm at. Back to your point is your question that you made, um, or I'm sorry, your question that you asked about that thing that you take away from is, is when I was a kid, I start the book out talking about this. My dad put me on a framing crew. I framed houses. I grew up in Oregon and I framed houses. And I learned two things, framing houses. One was I learned a work ethic because the guys that I worked for made me work. And so I learned the value of a hard day's work, right? Number two, this is something that I learned from a young age that I think is really, really valuable. That I think applies here overall. It is pride of ownership. So I was putting my tools in the back of my truck one day and I turned around to walk back to the front of my truck. And I looked at this massive house that we were building in West Portland, Oregon, up on this hill. And I was completely in awe of the, I said, I have been here when this was just a field. There was nothing that's here. And now I see this beautiful structure and I was part of building that. And I took this pride of ownership. My boss, I was expressing to my boss this feeling. I didn't know what it was. And he said to me, he's like, oh, that's pride of ownership. That's knowing that you made good art. And that's your life. Your life is when you get to 80, look back and know that you made good art. Whatever that art is, right? Whatever that thing is that you did in life, whatever that risk is that you took, just know that you made good art with your life and that you can take pride of ownership in your life and go and take that risk. Take that class that you always wanted to take. Maybe you like, oh, you know, I want to change my career. Maybe I want to go be a graphic designer. Great. My wife's uncle, he lost everything in his 40s in the, the Great Recession. He was, he was a construction, he owned a construction company in Michigan and he lost everything. And guess what he did? He had no college. He went back to four years of an undergraduate, applied to law school, went to three years of law school, became an attorney in his 50s. Okay. So he completely changed his life. He took a, did a total 180 and he's not going to look back at 80 and go, oh, I wish I would have done, you know, when I lost my construction business, instead of going and doing another job or whatever, he'll never regret having done that. He'll never regret having done that. And so you might be older, you might be in your sixties and thinking, oh, I wish I would have taken this direction or done that. Do it, do it. Take pride in ownership of your life, right? And make sure that you're not looking back and saying, I really wish I would have done this or this or this because you only get one life. You only get one shot. So make it happen. It reminds me of that quote I heard years ago. It's something to the extent of if you're wondering if essentially your life here is finished or if you uh, if your work here is finished, check in. Are you still alive? If the answer is yes, you still have work to do. Yes. <laughs> so it's coming from that space of regardless of what age you are, if you have the insight that there's something calling me, there's something that's exciting. I'd love to do that. Like you said, a class, a career, whatever it is. What if we play with the possibility it's calling to you for a reason and you come from that space that that's your next step, no matter how old you may be. When I was in med school in Arizona, there was a gentleman there, not at the school, but he was not too far from the school. He was, my understanding, was the oldest man in the United States. He was 114 years old. And uh, I, I read his book. He was a really cool guy. And he would go around the uh, Phoenix area and he would give talks. And he was very inspiring. And his wife was like 90 and he did the cooking and he was very like, he looked like he was probably in his seventies. You'd look at him going, you look amazing. And from that space, he was born 1901 and he passed away in 2015. And so you sit there and you say, 
how many careers did this guy have? And he, in like 1930, he was a five-star chef on a cruise ship. <laughs> and then he yeah. had other careers throughout his life. And you sit there and you go, if you don't like what you're doing, there are other options. And then I wrote here, this idea of the grass is greener. There's that old perspective people take, the grass is greener on the other side. But if you come from that space, you're always saying, there is always better than here. Yeah. Here is where you are. And then there's always better. So there's always some other job, some other location, whatever it is. But I like the shift or the updated statement of the grass is greener where you water it. Where you're watering it is where you're putting your time, your attention, your love, your money, et cetera. And then it grows. Whatever you focus on expands in your experience. And so if you can, if you're going to tell yourself the story about why it sucks, you just as easily could shift it and tell yourself the story about why you're so grateful that you have the job in the first place. Why this job that you hate is responsible for paying the bills that's keeping your family fed. 1,000% yes. Play into. And again, if if you're going to, Transition careers, by all means, do that. But if you're going to stay there now, you have the choice. Do I want to, if I'm going to be here for five more months, six more months, do I want to be miserable or do I want to enjoy it as much as possible before I leave? You have that choice always. And so as we wrap up, Chris, can you please share, is there anything you're working on or towards now that's exciting you? Well, I'm working towards the book launch, right? Maybe, I think my, maybe by the time you publish this, the the book will, will, will be published. I'm, I'm not sure what your schedule is like, but it's, I'm really working on um, getting this message out, right? Because uh, it's my passion and I'm, I'm passionate about helping other people to be able to accomplish their goals and get to a place in life, especially where they can own their own time, right? I want you to be able to own your own time. And um, independent consulting is a great way to do that. So um, that thing that I'm working on right now, I have a lot of other weird projects I'm working on right now, but that thing, that that mission of like, hey, how do I get out there and take this thing that I've learned you know, take it out of my mind, put it into, you know, this book, put it into an audio book too. It's in an audio book as well. I actually read the audio book um, and uh, give people that blueprint and that path forward to be able to make those positive changes in their life. That's what I'm passionate about now and will be for the rest of my life. And especially right now where I'm doing the book launch um, with, trust me, I'm a consultant. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's the thing I'm very much focused on. Love that. One acknowledgement that I'd love to share with you, but also as a a means of inspiring our audience as well. So I want all of our listeners to listen to this acknowledgement that I'm going to give to Chris as if I'm giving it to you because you could step into this. So Chris talked about being in the 20% and not the 80%. And let's say you you even make that smaller, the 10%, the 5%, the 1%, the most successful people in their field. So how did my conversation with Chris today start? One of the first things he told me was, Oh yeah, I've already read your book and I've already listened to at least one episode of your podcast because I really want to be prepared and I want to be respectful of both of our times. You know how rarely I hear that? (laughs) And something like that is so beautiful and it makes you stand out. Let's imagine you're about to go to a job interview. Well, most people just show up and let's say you show up going, yeah, I've already researched the company and I already identified three things you guys could be doing that could probably make things a lot better, whether you hire me or not. Here you go. <laughs> and yeah. at that point, you're proving like not only I belong here, but it's like I can play at that high standard no matter what it is. And so I just want to acknowledge you for that, Chris, because it's a testament to how you show up. I'd imagine there's that old adage, you know, how how we do one thing is how we do everything. You know, how you show up in one area of your life is likely bleeding over into other areas of your life. And if you're doing that with me, you're probably doing that across the board. And that's probably one of the reasons why you're as successful as you are. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, I really appreciate having me on. And uh, I, I love reading your message. And then I, I compare that to the thing we have. We 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 think very similar uh, and uh, have a lot of the same philosophies. And uh, uh, I just I wish you all the success. And thank you very much for having me on the show today. You're so welcome. And how can our listeners connect with you, work with you, anything like that? Yeah, website is sevenfigure.consulting. So it's not a .com, sevenfigure.consulting. And you can reach me on email there as well uh, and kind of access. That's like the access point to get to me in any any direction. Or you can also get the book there or on Amazon. You can get the book on Amazon as well. Trust me, I'm a consultant uh, is the title. And uh, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Beautiful. I'll have the links to everything in the show notes. And for our listeners, first, I strongly encourage you, go through this podcast more than once. If you found value in it, I find that whether it's a podcast, a book, whatever it is that you're consuming, at the end of it, you're not the same person that you were at the beginning of it. And so you'll hear things differently because if something that Christopher and I said, 80% of the podcast was a light bulb moment for you, when you re-listen to it, there's things that the light bulb moment of you onward would have caught that you missed because <laughs> you didn't have that moment yet. And so go through it again. Please share this far and wide, tag people in whatever capacity you can who would benefit from this. And please leave a review, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this goes a long way, helps the algorithm get this show out to more people. And Christopher, as we wrap up, anything else you'd like to say before we close? Just thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. And I hope the audience found a lot of value today. Uh, And uh, I look forward to hopefully us doing this again in the future. Awesome, man. And so, as I said at the beginning, my life's work is to help leaders, champions, and high performers to experience more happiness, peace, and fulfillment as they create an extraordinary life without regret. If you're going through a challenging time right now and or you have goals, dreams that you think are 5, 10, 20 years out, and you'd like to make them real in a couple months or a couple of years at the most, I'd love to partner with you to make that happen. You can book that call at jamilsayage.com. And if you're looking for, obviously, you know more content, Wherever you're tuning into this, there's 40 plus other episodes out there that are phenomenal conversations with packed with value. I got about a thousand-ish, maybe 1,100 posts I put out over the last six or seven years, short, bite-sized videos, blog posts, quotes, things that are designed to just shift the day that you're having and help you get where you want to be faster. You can find all that on my social media. Instagram is at Dr. Jamil Syed, DR in my name. Facebook and LinkedIn is just Jamil Syed. I'll put all the links in addition to everything Christopher shared in the show notes below. Thank you again so much for being here. I I know that for me, it's our time, our attention. These are our most valuable assets. And I don't take it lightly that each of you are tuning in to be with us today. If you're a return listener, thank you so much. I so appreciate you being a part of the community. And outside of that, I named this podcast Transformation Starts Today because I find that most people's favorite day to change their life is tomorrow. That's why they stay stuck. They procrastinate, they wait. They don't ever take advantage of like what Christopher talked about with that employee of his. There's this opportunity you have to go make your dreams come true. And when do you have it? Right now. And if you're going to do something about it, that once in a lifetime opportunity, that once every seven year opportunity, it's happening right now. What are you going to do about it? It's like that Eminem song has actually popped into my mind. He says, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's like when opportunity shows up, like do not miss your chance to blow. Opportunity shows up once in a lifetime, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is your opportunity right now. And so please uh, step into it for all of our sakes because the world needs you. All my love, wishing you all the best and I'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for being with us today. If this conversation served you, it would mean a lot if you left a review and shared this with anyone who may benefit. 
An extraordinary life without regret is available to you now. Choose it. It's your time.